Well, good morning. Isn't that a great song? I first heard that a few weeks ago, watching uh, the worship set of an online conference, and it just really, it just really ministered to me. And frankly, if we went home and we just got that, I don't think we'd ever be the same, would we? A few weeks ago, I was talking with Norflet um, shortly into his tenure as the pastor of adult discipleship, and he was sharing with me what he felt were the foundational truths we needed to know to really grow in our faith. And the first one was we needed to know who God is, that he is a good father. And the second one was we need to know who we are, that we're loved by him. Well, back in January, I had the privilege of sharing with you um, kind of my personal application of our mission statement here at Grace. You know, Grace is a mosaic, striving to live like Jesus. And the way I like to think of it is, is passionately pursuing living like Jesus. And how did Jesus live? He lived with this unbroken connection with his Father, where he heard, where he saw what God was up to And he lived with this unhindered flow of the presence and power of the Holy Spirit in his life. I shared my great uh, idea I had for Christmas, asking my wife what she wanted. And she said, I'd like some coupons to cause you to stop getting angry and frustrated. And on Wednesday, it will have been three months since that fateful day. I'm happy to report she hasn't gotten a a ticket from me, or she hasn't given me one. I must confess, though, a few weeks ago we were in the car and she threatened it, and it, in God's <laughs> eyes, I'm sure in God's eyes it was just as bad. But, but truthfully, I don't, I don't know that there's been a stretch of three months in my marriage. Where haven't? Blown a spigot or just been mean. So, it's off to a good start for me. And then the last couple months. And And then how about the last couple months? A church without curtains. A church where, yeah. Where God is known and loved, where you are loved and known. A church without pretense. More than 800 of us in over 90 groups have been meeting and It's just been such an incredible experience to see. And I know we had that survey that we sent out. I think over 400 have responded. But some of the comments of what God's been doing in the lives of of our congregation have been so encouraging to read. And the stories that were shared last week on the stage, you know, it's just been such a great, exciting time to be a part of what God's at work. And for those of you in the groups, you know, this last week you had that passage of blind Bartimaeus, the beggar who's crying out when he hears that the healer is walking by. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And, and Jesus looks at him and he says, what do you want me to do for you? And we spent some time sitting with that and saying, what do we really want Jesus to do in our lives? And all I can say is that it's sure been a great, a great beginning of, of our year for us all. Well, one of the big challenges that Doug set before us when he began as the interim a little more than a year ago was that he wanted to see our church create a culture of prayer. The phrase, immeasurably more, has been repeated over and over again. And one of the first goals that he had was that a thousand of us would agree to set our phones at 9.30 in the morning. And when it would beep, we would just take a moment and we would say, God, would you pour out your spirit? Would you pour out immeasurably more in our church? And the banners that are up somewhere out in the lobby have... 
the names of more than a thousand of us committing to prayer. The second big goal that he had was that he wanted to see our church catch a vision for coming before the service starts a half hour early and having more than a hundred people at each service gathering together, praying for the service, for the musicians, for the teachers in the classes, for the presentation that's done on the pulpit here. And I got to tell you, I wasn't as much of a fan of that one as I was putting it on my phone. I remember sitting in a staff meeting when we were being encouraged to kind of get on board. Uh, and Shanae Shoemake, Norflet's wife, who is a volunteer, Doug had asked to kind of champion prayer. She was kind of, you know, kind of going, what's going on? Why aren't you all there? And, and I said, you know, it's kind of hard. Melissa is up here leading worship a lot, and I got the kids, and it's, you know, I, I can't get out of, out of the house at 8.15 to get here. It's just, it's not realistic. And she just called me out. She said, well, you do it every day for school, don't you? It was one of those kind of times where you're just like, you're speechless, right? Like, and I said, as I drove home, I thought, you know, well, we'll see how this flies with a kid. I decided to let my high school um, son who can drive make his own choice. But I said to my girls, well, we're going to church at 8.15 this week. But I said, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll get you donuts at 8.45 if you'll do it. And so <laughs> that was enough to get them going. Or maybe it was enough to get dad going. I'm not really sure. But uh, I got to tell you, it's been an incredible surprise blessing for, for me and for my girls. They're even beginning to participate a little bit. And so better watch out because now that I'm feeling a little bit more confident like I'm actually doing it, I might just be called to invite some of you or challenge some of you to, to participate a little bit more. But that brings us to the topic for today. What does it mean to have a culture of prayer at Grace? What will it look like? Does it really even matter? And if it does matter and we get an idea what it would look like, how in the world are we going to get there? That's what I've been challenged with, uh, with presenting. And, and thankfully, I feel like God has given me something to encourage us with. And so I'd like to just have you pray with me as we begin. Lord, oh, thanks that you're a good father. I pray now that you would do something in our hearts today that will forever change us. And we ask that you would pour out a hunger for you, for your presence for an increased manifestation of your Holy Spirit in our lives, in our family, and in our church. In Jesus' name, amen. So culture of prayer. You know, you think about some words and you, you know, culture. I think it's easier to describe at times some things than it is to define it. Imagine for a minute that you worked in a work environment that had a culture of competition. What would that feel like? It probably wouldn't be a lot of warm fuzzies, would it? A lot of organizations, they think this is the best way to run them, and so they pit people against each other. They try to say there's going to be a winner and there's going to be a loser. Some of you will get fired. Someone's going to get the bonus, and you better figure out if you want it enough. And so you have this kind of culture of, of competition. Everyone's out to get something from someone else. Well, one of the greatest joys I've had um, as a parent has been the privilege that my boys have had to play football for Coach Sim. My partner, Tony Simbarusi, I think is one of the best youth coaches around. In fact, you may not know this, but a couple years ago, he was actually inducted into the Michigan Youth Football Coaches Hall of Fame. How about that? Well, here's what I've liked about his coaching style. He's learned how to create a culture of excellence, a culture of hungering to be the best. You know, you've probably all seen at least a practice 
or seen a movie about a practice, but typically what happens after the practice or as it ends is that it's time for the sprints, you know, and kind of the adage is, look, you got to be in shape, and, and a lot of times you'll see football players with a number four saying, we want to be ready so that when the fourth quarter comes around, we don't choke like the Lions are so used to doing over the last decade in the fourth quarter. We want to actually win the game there. And so you have a, a, a kind of a dilemma, not a dilemma, you have an option as a coach. What kind of culture do you want to create at the end of practice? And this is how it usually works from my experience. The coach will get up there and he'll start saying, let's get in groups and we'll run. And the group that wins gets to kind of sit and watch the losers either run some more punishment uh, sprints or maybe the losers do push-ups. Well, Tony had an interesting way of coaching. You see, he was trying to create something internal in the kids that would want them to be the best that they could be, as opposed to only working hard when there was external pressure on them. So he would run a few sprints, and he'd say, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to whittle you down. So if you're a little tired today, you don't really feel like trying your best, that's all right. I'm only going to have half of you stay. So after this next sprint, we went from 45 to 25 kids. And we'd run a few more, and he'd say, look, you know, I know some of you are getting tired. I'm really looking to see who really wants to be a champion. So we're going to get rid of 10 of you. And it would whittle to 15 and to 10, and then it would be down to 5 and to 2. And it's interesting because the people that tended to be in the last 10 out of 40 at 9 and 10 years old, fast forward 8 to 10 years later, ironically, they were the ones that were actually playing on the football field and starting at South. You see, he had learned how to create a culture of inspiring kids to be the best that they could be. And it's with that in mind that I want to ask us to think about what would it mean for grace to have a culture of prayer? I think it would be a culture of hunger, of hungering after all that God has for us, an audacious appetite for calling out for more of God's presence and power in our lives, kind of wanting to lay it all on the line, on the field, if you will. So this morning, we're going to look at a passage where Jesus discusses this core element in prayer. We'll look at a few other verses, and my goal is that you're going to come away with a picture of what it would look like to have a culture of hungering after God in prayer. And then I'm going to invite you to take some steps. You know, it's two more weeks till Easter. Some of us maybe chose to do some things for Lent. And I'm going to encourage us before we leave to maybe take some intentional steps in the next two weeks leading up to Easter to really begin to develop more of a hunger for God's presence in your lives. The passage today is from Luke chapter 11. It's page 735 if you want to grab one of the Bibles in your pew. It starts like this. One day, Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, will you teach us to pray as John taught his disciples? What's interesting about the timing of this request is that if you were to read today or tomorrow or sometime this week, chapters 9 and 10, it's just chock-filled with some amazing stories of what happened. In chapter 9, he actually sends the 12 disciples out, and it says that he gave them his authority and power to cast out demons and to heal the sick and to go proclaiming that God's kingdom was coming. It was such a success that they started bragging with each other about which one was really the greatest. Well, you should have heard what God did through me. He had to kind of tell them that wasn't it. And one time they were like, hey, we even saw some other people trying to do what we're doing. And we told them to be quiet. And Jesus said, don't forbid other people. A little bit later in the chapter, they're 
they're walking and they're kind of headed towards a town, presumably kind of looking forward to getting some food. And the people who were at the town didn't want the entourage to come. They must have heard of all the drama that happens when Jesus would come to town. And as they were kind of sputtering and walking on to the next one, they said, can we just call down some fire and just toast them all? Jesus says, no, nah, you're kind of missing a little bit of the spirit of this mission thing we're doing. In the next chapter, it says he sends out 72 more. So they've had a chance to do great things for God, and yet this specific day, they watch Jesus in prayer, and they say, will you teach us to pray like you pray? And he gives what I like to call the cliff notes, Lord's Prayer. You can do this one in 15 seconds, and this is how the prayer goes. Jesus said, say this when you pray, Lord, may your name be hallowed. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone indebted to us. Lead us not into temptation. It's a pretty simple prayer. God, we acknowledge you as holy. Would you bring your rule, your kingdom? Will you meet our needs every day? And we get that we really shouldn't ask you to forgive us if we're not extending mercy and grace to others. And God, protect us from the enemy. So far, so good. No real revelation of culture here. But then he starts telling some stories. And he says this. Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. For a friend of mine has arrived on a long journey and I don't have any food for him. And your friend will answer, go away. The door is shut. My kids are with me in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. And Jesus says, I tell you, Though he won't get up and help you out of friendship, yet because of your impudence, he'll get up and give you everything you need. Impudence, what is that word? I looked up in the thesaurus, my favorite place to go to get the quick answers. So you don't have to read the whole sentences in the dictionary. And these are some of the words that came up with impudence. Chutzpah, gall, boldness, audacity. The Amplified Bible has this translation of verse 8. I tell you, although he will not get up and supply him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his shameless persistence and insistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. Does it seem kind of odd that Jesus is talking about this kind of shameless audacity in the context of prayer? He goes on and he gives us a principle and he says this, I tell you, ask and it will be given. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened. For the one who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. And to the one that knocks, the door will be opened. His teaching's getting a little clear now, isn't it? There are some things that only the ones who seek after get. Everyone doesn't get the same gifts from the Father. Those who ask, seek, and knock get something that those who don't, don't. And if you think about it for a little bit, it can kind of start to grow on you. Think about this. Is he saying this? Is he saying that churches who don't spend much time asking, seeking, and knocking, wanting to hear God's voice or to experience his presence and power, is he saying that churches that don't do that, that they may not experience something that the churches that do ask and seek and knock do? I think it might say that. We're going to come back to that at the end. 
But he continues with another story. He says this. What father among you, if your son asks for a fish, would give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, you give him a scorpion? And then we get to his conclusion. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Might this mean that churches with a culture of hungering and crying out for more of God's presence and power in their church and community might experience more of God's presence and power in their community? We think so. And that's the vision that we want to kind of share with you this morning. Listen to what it says in Hebrews chapter 11. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things unseen. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. Because those who would draw near to God must believe he exists and believe that he rewards those who diligently seek him. So what's a culture of prayer? It's a culture of hungering after more of God's spirit and presence. Because we believe that God's a good father. We believe that we're loved by him. And we believe that if we diligently seek him, we will be entrusted with more of his presence and power. Doug sent me this verse uh, on Friday from Luke chapter 12. He said, it says this, Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you his kingdom. I was reading a book recently, and this quote really just kind of jumped out at me. Think about it. The hunger for more of God that you have testifies that more actually exists and is available. Kind of like the fact that in our spirits we have this hunger to really know God in a real way, not just to play religion or do different religious things. The fact that that's in our spirit is there by God because he wants us to seek more, to seek him. So before I kind of transition this a little bit into a slightly different tack, but I think it's still going to help us, I just want to... I want to recap where we are. The Lord's Prayer, the, wrote, the Cliff Notes version, is 15 seconds. That's part of prayer. We need to get that part right, the framing of it. But it's not the heart behind it that Jesus wants us to get. A culture of prayer is a culture of hunger. How much more will your Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him with shameless audacity? Well, what does more of God's Spirit look like? I love these verses from 1 Corinthians. I'm just going to read a few for you. In chapter 12, it says this. There are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. All of these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions them to each one individually as he wills. So... You know, I kind of picture this massive treasure trove of riches and of things, and the Holy Spirit just kind of apportions them to different people. And when you read that, it kind of seems a little bit more passive, right? Like, you know, we just kind of line up, and as we are in line, he'll go, I'll give you this gift, or I'll give you that gift. And that almost seems to contradict the kind of prayer that Jesus said, how much more will the Father give you the Holy Spirit to those who ask? But then we read towards the end of the chapter, and he says this, is everyone an apostle? Are all prophets or teachers do all work miracles 
Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues or interpret? And of course the answer is no. Everyone doesn't do everything. But he says, but earnestly desire the greater gifts. And I'll show you a more excellent way. And then he gives the whole chapter on love that probably all of us have heard from chapter 13. And then in chapter 14 he says this. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. Especially that you may prophesy. So with yourselves. Since you are eager for the manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. So it's good to eagerly hunger for more of God's Spirit. And he says, desire that you may prophesy. And, you know, that's a, that's a, a term we haven't really talked a lot about in our church. And, you know, it's kind of not clear. What's it mean to be a prophet or to prophesy? Here's one of the greatest kind of um, definitions of it I've read in the last 6 to 12 months. To prophesy is to call forth God's destiny for people. It's kind of like God gives you an insight or, or a picture for what God's intention is. And you, in a sense, you speak life to kind of bring them forward to where God wants them to be. Can you imagine if in our small groups we could have this sense that as we gather together, that we could say, God, give me a vision of how I can help Joe or Mary. What do you want them to be? And we could begin to speak words that would catapult them forward in encouragement. I think that's a little bit about what he's saying. Let's hunger to be a church where God gives us the ability to really encourage our brothers and sisters, to seek after God and to experience more of him. Listen to how the early church prayed. This is from Acts chapter 4. You know, the Holy Spirit at Pentecost came out in, in Acts chapter 2, and all this amazing stuff happened, and 3,000 people came to faith. In the next chapter, Peter and John, the leaders of this whole thing, are walking up to pray, and there's um, a beggar there asking for money. And Peter looks at him and he says, I don't have that, but what I do have... I give you, in the name of Jesus, walk. And he gets up and he's excited and he's running around the temple. And, and you know, again, it's only two months after Jesus was killed. And the leaders there are like, you know, how did this happen? And, you know, and they're saying, it's the name of Jesus that it happened. And they go, we don't want you to talk about Jesus. That's, you know, and they arrest him and they kind of give him a little discipline. They say, don't do this anymore. And they go... I hate to tell you, but we can't help but speak about what we've seen and heard. So they get together now, and there's this prayer meeting going on at the end of chapter 4, and this is their prayer. And of course, they were threatened, you know, watch out, we got the power. Now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you, God, stretch out your hand to heal... And while signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus, and when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. It was like an earthquake happened in the building that they were praying in. I wonder what it would do to our community if a bunch of us started to really begin saying, God, we're hungering for you to show up, to intervene in marriages, to touch our children and, and our friends that are far from you, that are caught in addiction, that are, that are stumbling. God, would you pour out your spirit and heal people who are sick, that we could really demonstrate that you're alive to people. 
I'm going to take a little turn here with the airplane, if you'll kind of just pause for a second in your minds. And I've had to cut a lot back because the couple times I've rehearsed this with people, they said that at this point they kind of glaze over and doze. So I'm going to kind of go fast, five minutes. But I'm really excited about this part of what I'm sharing with you. All right. Think about Moses and the Israelites, okay? They're slaves in Egypt in the burning bush, you know, God says, go back there. I'm going to give you all this power. You're going to bring everyone. I want you to bring them back to this mountain, Mount Sinai, to worship me. So, you know, all the miracles happen, and they get to the Red Sea, and they see the kind of sea collapse on all the armies of Egypt, and they start going around. And you imagine you're on a three-month camping trip. It's three months from the time they leave to the time they get to the, uh, to the mountain. The only problem is there's almost a million of them, and they don't have McDonald's. And they don't have a map of where all the oases are. So they're kind of following the cloud. And God's kind of telling Moses what to do and where to go and so forth. And several times, they'll show up somewhere expecting to get some, like, refreshment. And there's nothing there. Well, in chapter 17, this is one of those times. And they kind of start whining, like, you know, we wish we'd never left. You know, you're a horrible leader, Moses. And Moses is like, dude, this isn't my gig. This is God's gig. And this is what the answer is. This is where he strikes the rock and the water comes out. And this is how they describe it. When you began questioning why we're here without water, what you're really asking was this, God, are you among us or not? Right before the Ten Commandments are given in chapter 20 and chapter 19, God's talking with Moses and he says, this, you Israelites are my treasured possession. I want you to be a kingdom of priests. In other words, what I want is all of you to have access to, to me, not just a few select religious folks, I want to know all of you. Several times, you know, Moses is brought to the top and God says, you know, do like that. Come back down, tell him this. One time he went up and he said, you know, go down and put the boundary up. I, I picture like yellow caution tape. Don't cross this line. You know, this is the holy ground. Um, when God actually shows up, there's this time where he says, you know, in three days I'm going to come. So no more sinning, clean up, get ready for me. And they come to the edge and it says that the lightning and thunder happens and there's fire and there's smoke. And they get a little freaked out. And in chapter 19 it says that the people were trembling in fear and it says that the mountain was trembling. You know, Jamie said the mountain will melt like wax. Well, here's like, you know, an earthquake. You can just kind of imagine like going, what's happening? This is like freaking them out. And then in chapter 20... The people say to Moses, we're too afraid of this God. You go speak to God. You tell us what to do and we'll obey. What's that sound like? Religion, right? God's too scary. I'm content to just follow a few rules. I don't know that I really want the living God invading my life. So here's the nugget I want to share with you. This is for those of you who are more the advanced, kind of been to church all your life. How many people got to go on the mountain with Moses? Anyone? One. One. Okay. I never saw this passage before, this a couple weeks ago. Well, the picture I had in, in the movie, if you've ever seen the movie version of it, is, you know, he's coming down with the Ten Commandments, and of course they've all sinned, and he's about to smash them. But they get almost all the way down, and Joshua's kind of there as assistant, and he's like, I don't know, Moses, but they're really noisy down there. I, I think they're having a party. No, they're sinning. All right. Listen to this. This is from chapter um, 24. Then Moses, Aaron, and his two sons, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up. And they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, 
a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And God did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God, and they ate, and they drank. Now, he goes on to say only Moses got to go to the peak, but this was like past the caution tape, if you will. There wasn't really caution tape, but I'm just picturing it that way. God has a spread for 74 people. I never saw that before. It reminds me of that passage in Revelation at the kind of the, the end of all those letters Jesus dictates. And in chapter 3, verse 20, he says this, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens the door, I will come in, and I'll eat with him, and he with me. So what does all this mean? On the one hand, Jesus is inviting us to bring a shameless audacity in our prayers where we ask and we seek and we knock for God to release more of his presence, more of his spirit in our lives. Even the Lord's prayer itself says, may your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God wants us to hunger for his reality and presence. He tells us, those who seek me, those who diligently seek me, will find me. But on the other hand, those who've experienced God's presence, it's kind of scary. And not all of us really want to deal with the reality of having the light of God shine in our lives. Some of us would rather be religious than we would be in a relationship with a good father, the kind of God that knows how to make a nice dinner banquet on the middle of a mountain in the desert. I'd like to go back to that question I asked you a few minutes back. Is Jesus teaching us that churches who really don't take seriously a culture of prayer, asking, seeking, and knocking for more of God, will miss out on an adventurous life that the churches that get this right and really do seek after God get to experience? I could just share some examples of what I've seen going on in different places. And I want to start with just, just our church. A couple years ago, the staff were at an off-site retreat, and part of what they were doing is they were kind of just trying to dream and picture with the vision. What would it look like at Grace if we were getting it right and God was really at work? What do you picture it looking like? And the way they described what they discussed is something like this. It's a place where God's presence was just being poured out. Where people were drawn because when they came, they just sensed God. They sensed his presence, his love. A place where people were experiencing healing. A place where the seats were full. And that people were coming on time or early, not 20 minutes late. Because something was at work here. It kind of reminded me of the time that I, I met Kevin Singleton, remember the guy that came in from New York for a couple years um, on and off? We visited his church, Hillsong, New York, almost three years ago. And when we got there, it was, they were renting a, like a nightclub is where they met. And literally, there were people going down the street and around the corner waiting to get into the next service. It was incredible. They've had something like 20 to 25,000 people that have come to faith in Christ in the last three or four years in their church. And one thing that's interesting is that they have maybe, I don't know, they go to church from 8 in the morning to 8 at night. It's like all day long they have these services. But they have people interceding, praying constantly that God would move. And it's an interesting correlation that it's a church where God's actually moving. People are being drawn. There's another church called the Brooklyn Tabernacle. They're 
kind of more famous for their Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir in days past. But um, their pastor, Jim Symbol, has been doing something for a while. But they have a service in the middle of the week. I think it's Tuesdays. It's their prayer service. And it's become the lifeblood of the church. Because people who come there to get prayed for, they get healed. People that are broken, people that are stuck in addictions, they're finding the presence of God affecting their life. And it's become this huge part of their church. Because they began to say, let's start a culture of prayer. Let's start seeking God. There's another church called Bethel Church, one that I've really loved, the ministry that they have. They have a prayer room set up. They literally have people that fly in from parts of the country, probably even the world. I have a friend of mine who went there, and he was healed of an ulcer in his stomach from the people at this prayer room. It's a church that believes that God still today wants to move and touch his people. I shared with you, you know, a few times ago about this businessman friend I met um, in Chicago a few years ago that just really inspired me to live my life with a lot more expectation of what God might do. Well, he's since uh, changed jobs. He lives in Dallas, and I was talking to him a month ago, and he was telling me what his church was doing for Lent. He said, oh, it's so awesome, Bryce. From 6 to 8 in the morning, 11 to 1 over lunch, and 6 to 8 at night, we've got some worship playing, and we just invited people to come in for prayer, to come before work, after work, at lunchtime. And he goes, I can't tell you how much it's just affecting my life to do that before I go to work. And it just sense God's presence and praying for God to pour out his spirit. And then we had this amazing gift on Thursday. There's a church in Iowa. We're about a 115-year-old church. That church is about 120 years old. And it kind of feels like they're about five years ahead of where we are. Many of you in our church have done this Leading Edge program, and one of the authors of it, Randy Reese, has become a dear friend to our church and a, and a dear mentor to Doug. The last couple of summers, our staff elder retreat, he's been our, our leader in. As we've really been, not necessarily struggling, but we've really been saying, God, how do we do discipleship in small groups? How do we really help our church grow? He said to us, I think of all the churches I've worked with, this is the church you need to get to know. And one of their two key pastors was gracious enough to fly in on Thursday and spend a day with us. And I got to tell you, it was one of the most encouraging things that have happened in my life in the last few months. The guy spoke about the brokenness that they've experienced, the humility of learning it's about God and not them. They talked about how having, I think, 800 of their people have been through this kind of first year of the, the leading edge equivalent. He said, what we love about that foundation is it begins to expose people to their story, to their wounds. And then we've begun to move in this area of this prayer ministry. It sounded a lot like our restorative prayer, helping people really hear God's voice and find healing from some of the wounds of their past. And they begun to really begin to see God bring healing as they prayed. And they talked about kind of the prophetic and how God's moving in these areas. And there was just such a sweetness about him and a, and a humility and a, and a sense of, look, if we can help encourage your church in any way, we'd love to do that. So how do we get there? How do we become a church that's more hungry for God. I think the first one is, is thankfully kind of an easy one. And it's, it's desperation. I'd say what? Maybe 20 to 50% of us here, you come in here today and there's something that's weighing on your spirit. Maybe it's a child that you're worried about. Maybe it's a marriage and it's a spouse that just 
you just sense that they're leaving you emotionally or they're being unfaithful. Maybe it's a medical issue. When God gifts us with these crises, it's great fuel to seeking after God's help because you realize you can't solve the problem yourself. You need his help. When, we, when those of you in that category did that exercise in your small group about, you know, if Jesus said to you, what do you want me to do for you? It didn't take you very long to figure that one out. I know exactly what I want you to do for me, God. I want to encourage you to take that crisis and help that to fuel in you this crying out for God, for breakthrough, for God to show up. You know, one of the ways that you can tell that God's showing up in your crisis is when you can start to have peace. It says in Philippians 4, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, with prayer and thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God that passes comprehension will fill your hearts and minds. So that's the kind of easy one. There's another one that's going to be a little bit harder, and I happen to think this is maybe the point of what God's asking me to share today. You see, some of you, in order to do this, you're going to have to risk being disappointed again. Believing it's possible that God might be a good God. That he might actually care about you. Believing that it's possible that God might actually want to reach out and touch your wayward child. Or to heal something that hasn't been healed. And you know, I get this disappointment thing. You pray for God to heal the diagnosis of the baby in the womb. And yet the baby stills stillborn when it's born. You pray for God to move in your family, to help your parents reconcile. But they get divorced anyway. You pray for God to do a miracle in your child's heart, and it just seems like they're running further from God. And you begin to wonder, is God really so good? Is it me? Am I just not his favorite? Or you begin to go, God, maybe you're just not even really there. And for some of you, the word for you today is you need to believe that God's good and he loves you. And he's wanting you to press in. And to have a a shameless audacity to begin praying bold prayers again. For others of you, it's not quite that same it's not quite that same kind of hurt, but it's almost the same story of, of, of lack of faith, unwilling to be risking getting disappointed. Because I know that some of you, when I share that, that passage about the fact that something yearns in you for more is proof that God's put it there for us to seek after it. You've just been so used to religion. You've just become convinced that God doesn't speak. He doesn't really invade our lives, and therefore the best I can do is get on the treadmill and hope I'm doing a good enough job for him to throw me a few crumbs here and there. And I think God wants you to just hear, I made the banquet for 74. I wanted everyone to be a priest. It was you that chose to say it's too scary. Not you personally, but you as people. And the heart of God is I'm knocking. I want to know you in an intimate way. And I want to encourage you to trust that. 
And I hope most of us are maybe more in this camp, and you just need a little, a little turbocharge, a little kickstart, a little reminder that God rewards those who seek him. It's just the way he set it up. I think the last thing that's going to help us to really get this is when we start to hear testimonies of what God's doing. And God is doing things in our church. God's exposing where we're hiding. And many of us are, are repenting and we're confessing it. God's exposing where our woundedness is keeping us from forgiving. And he's speaking to us, you need to let go. So, we've got two more weeks of Lent. What might you do intentionally in the next couple weeks to begin to hunger for more of God's presence and power in your life? I've just got four quick things I want to invite you to consider. And first is what Doug said. Next Sunday, Martin Sanders is going to be here. What if five to ten of our 90 small groups just said, hey, let's try this 8.30 a.m. gig. Let's just show up and see. Let's see if as we, as we come and we start to settle our hearts and we really pray for an outpouring of God's Spirit, maybe as Martin comes, and Martin is such a gifted, anointed man, if those of you don't know his story, there's deliverance, there's people coming to faith, there's empowerment, it's incredible what he does, and yet two years ago his wife got a disease and she slowly, slowly faded away and she died last fall. And Martin's going to talk about the joy of the, the Palm Sunday triumphal entry, and yet the disillusionment that occurred throughout the week, especially on Good Friday, where the disciples, as their dream was crushed, and he's lived through such a disappointment in his life. And I just believe this is going to hugely impact many of us. I just encourage you to, to be here, and some of you maybe to try this early pre-service prayer. And then next Sunday night, um, we're going to do a listening room, and it's going to be more of like a, a healing kind of listening room. And we want to invite you to, to step out. If you need a touch from God, if you need to hear his voice, if you need healing, risk the disappointment. Let's begin to just step out in faith and see what God might do. On Good Friday, the service will go at 7 o'clock, but in the daytime from 12 to 3, they're going to open the church and there's going to be kind of like the Stations of the Cross kind of environment. And I'd like to invite those of you who have the day off to consider coming for a portion of that time to just be here and to just reflect on what the crucifixion means to you, what God's love means to you, and might that begin to stir a, a deeper hunger in you. And then lastly, um, each morning the next two weeks, either a, a pastor or elder will be here at 6 to 7. We just want to say, if God wakes you up early, and it just prompts in your spirit, I'd like to just invite you to come and to just begin to say, I'm taking baby steps of seeking God. Let's become a church of people who really want to pursue all that God has for us. It's not rote prayers and religion. It's, it's a relationship. And, and Jesus says, I like shameless audacity. Let's be the people that God rewards for diligently asking, seeking, and knocking. As Jesus said, how much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? We're going to close with a song. It's called Set a Fire. I'd just like to invite you to have this be a prayer that you have to the Lord.
stand or kneel or walk around or however you want to make this song your prayer, your personal prayer. anyone around us that we just sense needs a touch from God.
Lord, we just are so grateful that you love us. You know how often we fall short, how often we settle to just take it safe and follow some rules versus really opening our lives to a living God. Lord, we just, we just pray a blessing on each person here, our families and the kids that are scattered around the building. And we want more unbroken connection with you and we want more unhindered flow of your presence through us. And we thank you for the privilege of being your children. In Jesus' name, amen.